TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with VSA's Dana Arnett about getting kicked out of design school, about making the jump from designer to CEO, and about showing enthusiasm for seemingly minimal jobs. I remember the management team looking at me going, <laughs> oh, God, he must really love this company. Uh, we'll take that one. Here, here's your $400. Here's Debbie Millman. Dana Arnett is the CEO of VSA Partners, the powerhouse brand and marketing consultancy. VSA Partners has about 300 associates and clients like Harley-Davidson, IBM, General Electric, and Coca-Cola. In the world of design and branding, VSA is a big shop with big clients and Dana Arnett is the big guy. But he's not just a suit, not by a long shot. In late April, Dana Arnett will receive the 2014 AIGA Medal for his own exceptional achievements. He lives and works in Chicago, and he joins me today to talk about his 30 years in the business at our studio in the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Dana, welcome to Design Matters. Great to be here. Congratulations on receiving the AIGA Medal. Did you ever imagine that this would be happening? You know, I was hoping for a gold watch in 30 <laughs> years, but I'll gladly, with humility, accept the, the medal. Now it's exciting and uh, strange how it occurs at the 30-year mark, but very flattered. Now, I read that you grew up in two different places, so I'm not entirely sure which is accurate. In one place, I read that you grew up in Peoria, and then in another place, I read that you grew up in Milton, both in Illinois. So I wanted to know which is which. I grew up in Morton. Morton, okay. So my biographers are really must be uh, sort of downstream guys, um, which is right outside of Peoria. So, you know, in the rural middle America that I grew up with, you sort of said, oh, we're, we're, I'm from Peoria. Right. It's like when you live on Long Island, you say you live in New yeah, York City. Yeah, I live yeah. in New York. Close enough. <laughs> um, but you've lived in Illinois your whole life. Was there ever a time when you wanted to live elsewhere? 
actually, I had a desire to go to Art Center in California. That was kind of the school coming out of high school in the late 70s. And as it turned out, um, there was a state school that gave me a little scholarship money and uh, made things a whole lot easier. (laughs) But no, you know, I've come to actually appreciate Illinois and Chicago as a very comfortable, great place to live, raise a family, start a design shop. And So you went to Northern Illinois University. I'm assuming that that's the school that gave you that little bit of money. Yeah, enough to be dangerous. But I understand that before you graduated, you were asked to leave the program after the faculty rejected your portfolio in sophomore year. Yeah, scandal. <laughs> Really? I mean, look at you now, right? Every story needs a plot, right? (laughs) Um, In most curriculums, and it's true of some today, you you get your base courses out of the way, you submit, you know, 20 or 30 examples of work, and the faculty gets together and decides whether you're deemed important or good enough to continue. In your sophomore year? I guess it's the survival of the fittest... uh, scenario. But it actually had a, a an interesting bearing and effect on me because it's sort of that early defeat and, you know, the lessons I learned from it. From what I understand, I read that your faculty, the faculty that rejected you, apparently took issue with your contrarian view and your love for experimentation. So contrarian view, okay, so were you like a curmudgeon or something? Or were you, you know, were you an anarchist? I mean, what what was happening? But the love of experimentation doesn't really, I mean, wouldn't you be rewarded for that? More of a redneck, actually. (laughs) Um, You know, if, if you think back to that period of design, it was right in the middle of that big Helvetica corporate identity movement where... Most of the curriculums outside of maybe CalArts and a few uh, Cranbrook or RISD, they just put you through the regiment. You would do your corporate identity. You would do your four logos. You would do a brochure. And it wasn't that I didn't admire and really embrace sort of the foundational ideals of design. I just wanted to play a little bit more and experiment. And But that our curriculum was really... Um, essentially full of a lot of tenured professors who were running an old playbook and didn't really want anybody to step outside of that. So in a moment of underdog vindication, a week after you were asked to leave the program, a group of designers from Chicago awarded your work, the same work that had been rejected by the faculty, best of show in the Northern Illinois University Student Design Competition. So is that when they took you back? Did they, like, have to beg to get you back? Did you play hard to get? Interestingly enough, they didn't take me back. The decision was made, and um, the outcome basically got me a meeting with the uh, dean and the chair, because they really felt that they had egg on their face. But, you know, the graphic design faculty were just standing by their decision. And as I looked at the, had that conversation with the the head of the department, he said, well, you know, we have this uh, degree that you can take called comprehensive design, where you can take graphic design courses that go all the way up to senior level courses, but you also have to surround that with a comprehensive multidisciplinary collection of courses in interior design at the time, computer-aided design, Mm. uh, product design. 
And that actually was the happy outcome for me, that I was really more excited to have that holistic view. And um, so I went on to to really embrace that kind of uh, new approach to my secondary education. How do you recover from that? I mean, if that had happened to me, I think I'd have ended up becoming, you know, a person that had nothing to do with design. How did you just say, you know what, I believe in myself so much. I am continuing on in the face of this really tremendous rejection at such an impressionable age. I was actually, um, I actually did have this sense that I probably had failed. It hurt me more because I was passionate at even that early age about graphic design. I had had exposure to it before I got into college. And it was really something I went in declared to do. Mm-hmm. And then I had to tell my parents. And oh, then I had to God. look at these, what I, what I thought were more brown-nosed students that got accepted into the program because they did everything the teacher said they should do. And so to me, on, a, on an ideals level, <laughs> felt like design might have failed me. But ironically, design is about taking risks and um, not just taking them, but living with the great things that can come with taking risk. I, I had one or two people in the department that still believed in, in me, and I think that's so important to find a mentor, to find an instructor even today that that you can have a conversation with, that can um, sit with you one-on-one as a human being. And, and I was lucky there were a couple people that saw through some of the politics. Now, I couldn't uncover where you worked right after you graduated college. What was your very first job? My very first job was for a um, kind of a multidisciplinary type of firm called Bischoff Lincoln. I was there eight months. And the reason they took me on is they were an interior design firm that had graphic design as well. So the first eight months of my career, I designed bank interiors. Wow, that comprehensive design degree really came in handy. Well, not only did I work on the environmental graphics, but the the rack brochures and the uniforms. And as sterile or as pedestrian as that might seem, it was they threw me right into the thick of it. I honestly, had I gone to work for more of a traditional design firm, I probably would have been making Xeroxes and doing key lines, which I did a fair amount with. But yeah, I went there and then um, I quit. It was just too confining. I went to work for a really great designer named Steve Liska. Um, lasted about a year there, and I was just restless at that stage and wanted to sort of do something on my own. And that's when you went to work with Robert Vogel. Well, I did. I spent about eight months trying to start my own business, and um, Bob always wanted to um, know what I was doing. He was always interested in me. He was always supportive and a true mentor in every sense of the word. And um, after several conversations, he said, let's start the design firm of the future. I love that quote. (laughs) Um, I read an article where you recall meeting Bob for the first time when you were still a college student, and you state... Bob came to the university to conduct a lecture, and there was a gallery showing of his modern art collection. I was either smart enough or lucky enough to tug at his shirt tail and make an introduction, and Bob was very engaged with me. He said, anytime you want to talk, feel free to call me. That began a three- or four-year conversation that Bob was open to having whenever I was in Chicago. 
What was that like to get that kind of attention from somebody that was so revered in the business? Gratifying. Um, Bob had a passion for surrounding himself with young people. Still does at 85-plus years old. Um, It was a time in his career where he was transitioning and he was heading up the sort of precursor organization to AIJ, the STA, and wanted to just embrace every aspect of human interaction when it came to design, whether that was with luminaries of the time like George Nelson or it was kids fresh out of school. And we'd have two, three-hour lunches and um, talk about everything from life to typefaces to the great philosophers of the age of modernism. <laughs> wow. that's a, I wish we had tapes of those exchanges. What do you think Robert meant by design firm of the future? Well, if you think about his trajectory, he came out of school at a time where graphic design was a craft. And graphic designers sat in the back room and really rarely, if ever, got a seat at the table with with the CEO or you know senior executives. And he was just fortunate enough to go to work soon after he got out of the university for Raymond Lowy's office in Chicago, Latham Tyler Jensen, and um, it's a product office doing what great product design firms did at the time. They were sort of creating the modern industrial revolution from transistor radios to trains to typewriters. And Bob was the guy doing the packaging and all that work. And from day one, he got a seat at the table with the decision makers in the corporate world. And that's when Bob began to sort of embrace this bigger idea of, he called it Big D, in its design in the sort of business sense. Um, Bob um, was at the first Aspen Design Conference And, you know, that first Aspen Design Conference was designed as a function of management. And Bob was in the center of this cacophony of where design was emerging at a rapid level. You had Mies van der Rohe on one end of town. You had Container Corporation on the other. You had, you know, Ralph Eckerstrom. Bob was part of that new legion of modernist designers, and he loved sharing that wisdom espousing the notions and the higher value of design. And he felt like behind that moniker design firm of the future, that if he could find a few young people to share and and imbue his philosophy through and to, maybe there would just be a chance that something would emerge from that. Before you joined Robert, the firm's name was Communication Design Boy, Group. Boy, there's, there's an original one. Right? <laughs> it's almost as good as the Container Group. Yes. <laughs> and he ran the business with his son, Bruce, and Ted Stoich. Right. They eventually changed the name to Vogel Stoich Associates. Right. And then after Bruce left and you joined in 1985, the firm became VSA Partners. Mm-hmm. I think most people assume that the A in VSA Partners is Arnett. Um, so that worked out really nicely. But was it ever formally changed? Is Arnett part of the VSA no, and, vernacular? And, and purposely so. Um, we have now, you know, 20 partners. And Bob was very, um, you know, when he thought about the name of the firm, it was just such an ancillary thing. And um, by by virtue of calling it communication design firm, that would 
that would tell you a lot. So our name was really just an outgrowth of the first names on the door. And really, though, when we began to think about expanding the group and the leadership group, the partner group, the word partners meant more. From what I understand, and I think this was from an article in my research that was written quite a long time ago, that VSA structured partnerships similarly to the way that Pentagram did, where each partner had their own discipline, their own practice. Mm -hmm. Is that still the way you are organized? Well, I think the difference now is Pentagram has a clear definition around partner, and those are people um, that are practicing at the highest level of design. They also generally have their own books of business. We are structured a little bit different. And up until about eight, nine years ago, that's the way we were structured. But then we got into different practice areas like strategy and technology. And now we've evolved even to having a client account function. So we call that client engagement. So we're a little bit more of what you would classically call a matrix organization, although I hate that word. But we have the hunters and the gatherers, and then we have the doers. Even the hunters and gatherers, though, have really sharp expertise around design, around technology, around strategy. But again, as we got to a point where we became more multidisciplinary and larger, we had to put at least a scaffolding in place to support what was becoming an unmanageable thing at like 100, 150. I kind of chuckle because people often say, my God, what are you doing? You're a 300-person design firm. What are you, building airplanes? (laughs) And honestly, we consider ourselves on some levels with the kinds of client requests we're getting and projects we're doing as as small. I mean, we're really kind of working across branding, advertising, marketing, and design. So we really take a a holistic view and, and approach to what we're going after. So we're kind of small when we come up against Razorfish or Leo Burnett or Ogilvy. Sure. Um, we're real big when we come up against what I would call the sort of normal traditional size design firms. But we're much more non-traditional in what we offer. You started your career in design. By 1999, you were named to the ID40, which meant you were one of the 40 most important people shaping design internationally. Shortly thereafter, you were elected a member of AGI, the Alliance Graphique Internationale. Yet now, you're the CEO of VSA. And I read an interview wherein you emphatically stated that you're not going to get very far if you're just a designer. So talk a little bit about the trajectory from design to CEO. Well, first of all, you you got to understand your own potential. And when I say just a designer, I think most designers are so multifaceted in the way they think, the way they execute. There's a big difference, in my opinion, of of the way a designer will attack a problem versus an art director. How so? Well, I think they look at both ends of the spectrum. How is a problem going to get solved and what will be the business benefit? I really believe that at least the way we operate, we think that way. I think art directors, while they probably understand the business benefit, a lot of them, they want a big campaign to air 
And that's great. There needs to be great advertising and great campaigns. And But I think designers are really challenged and possessed by the sort of getting into the muck, you know, from the way a line of type is current to what is the headline saying to what is the color palette to what does the client want to how does the brand behave. And I think the best in our class, if you will, in our profession are the big thinkers that are just as excited about an idea becoming having business value as they are making sure that logo is the perfect size in the right-hand corner and that headline is current the right way. So, you know, I think Paul Rand said, design provides context for understanding. And I think that gets right to what um, designers love to do. They like to make meaning. The CEO title is really simply an outgrowth of our organization getting to the size where it needed support at the corporate level because we had to put in place what I would call more of some of the traditional agency infrastructure like human resources and recruiting and finance and ops and because we're not going down the street anymore renting a 1,500-square-foot space where, you know, we have a 60,000-square-foot So these decisions have to be made at the highest level with the culture in mind. So the difference is, is I'm not a CEO that sits 2,000 miles away at a holding company making decisions around what's best for the organization. I'm able to become more of a steward at this point in my life, although I do miss getting my hands dirty. I still do a few things a year, but I'm actually just as excited doing sort of what Vogel did it when he was my age and designing an organization that can support a generation to come. How did you learn the skills required to be a successful CEO? Through Bob, through senior executives that I hired. So I have, you know, people coming out of the University of Chicago, Booth School of Business with finance degrees who have worked at big corporations. And I have people that have worked at larger agencies. I am surrounded by a lot of advisory talent that is just as excited gleaning the vision and creating it through me as I am through them. I always believe that you could have your cake and eat it too. You can have a great creative agency that makes money. And um, the two of those things at times seem like they're in conflict with our profession because people think you got to sacrifice one for the other. But again, Vogel was a big believer early on that, you know, if you can create a sustainable business model, you can have fun for years to come. And, you know, here we are. Most firms, especially partnerships, last 10 years on a, on a good day. I find that the more senior the executive, the more their job is about making sound decisions making the right decisions and, and making them fairly quickly. They're able to assess scenarios and, and make the decision about which direction the organization or the practice should go in. How did you come to rely on your own decision-making process, not having had that prior experience making those executive decisions? It begins by trusting your instincts, especially if you've been around long enough and you know everything from where the soda is stored in the refrigerator to what kind of covenants you have with your with your bank. But that's 
frankly been my biggest climb, and I'm sort of midway up the hill around separating at times this deeply emotional DNA that I have as as a designer and someone that still really has a a human-centered approach. Translating that into a business context has been hard for me and um, for most of the leaders, whether they're in a corporation that makes widgets or whether it's the senior executives I know at some of the big ad agencies, I think they all went through that transition if they weren't sort of school in traditional business. I read that you began your business as many branding and design offices do. You were small and hungry and tried to do the most incredible work possible, and you were willing to attempt almost anything. Has that changed at all? Are you still willing to attempt almost anything, or do you feel that you have to work within a certain framework now that you're so big? That has to stay intact because at the end of the day, no matter how sound a business model we have, it's a human capital business that wins or loses on talented people creating great ideas. So, you know, when you get into areas like we're getting into now, you know, some of the highest growth areas actually around predictive modeling and deeper ways to integrate data science and You can never sacrifice creativity and the value of a really sound idea. If that happens, that will probably be the demise. Now, I'm not trying to make a premonition here, but if the management doesn't believe in it, if that doesn't start in the corner office, I think that's where you ultimately see great firms kind of start to slide. You're going into all of these new areas that in many ways are unproven. Many of them are extremely volatile, here today, gone tomorrow, Mm -hmm. the bust, the booms, the bubbles, and so forth. How Mm -hmm. do you make a decision about which type of industry you want to go into and want to spend time developing? Well, you know, it starts with a, a, a vision, and our vision has always been to bring great thinking and great ideas to big challenging problems, put that great thinking into those ideas to work for big companies. Traditional advertising, as we know it, is changing as rapidly as maybe any creative industry. If you look at the way a customer behaves today across mobile devices, through retail experiences, through word of mouth, there's less of a dependence on paid media, sort of traditional ways that used to be effective enough to bump brand awareness and sell more things. Now the power, of course, is in the consumer and then designing experiences across that journey that a consumer has is the perfect place for designers to excel now. So we have really stayed true to the idea of designing in multidisciplinary groups that are highly collaborative. But what has changed now is that sort of journey, if you will, whether it's B2B or B2C, is how do you influence behavior along that journey? Today, everything's all a flutter around big data. Mm. You know, data's been around probably even more so in the age of paper. Oh, yeah. Data was around in the 1920s when P&G salesmen were knocking on doors. So there's always going to be that data. And if it can help inform the way you create an experience, then designers have the ultimate sort of arsenal of weapons to solve a problem. The big difference, I think, in terms of the way we're approaching it, we're actually doing more of what I would call predictive modeling. And tell us about that. 
Well, it's really looking at how you take both quantitative and qualitative data. You marry it around the way consumers behave. So are you doing the qualitative and the quantitative research? Yeah. And so it's the quali-quant sort of? Yeah, and I think what's different is, you know, in the old days, there was more of what I would call a segmentation approach. You know, we have these five consumers. They break down these six ways. So what we're infusing it with is design thinking. And when it gets into the predictive phase, we're able to kind of look across the consumer journey and say, how are we going to kind of model the brand in the way the brand's experienced so that there's more of a sustainable journey for the brand so we can track the value creation, the return on marketing spend. And you're able to really, in that way, become more predictive around the way the brand lives and behaves and then how it influences and motivates the market. And CMOs need that today. They want that. You know, that there's not a CMO in America that doesn't have a CEO breathing down his back saying, I want to understand the return on investment in terms of marketing. The old days there was Nielsen and there were, as you know, various ways to track brand awareness, track um, purchase intent. Now, through technology and through avenues that we're finding, whether it be through neuropsychology or through behaviors you see in conversations you monitor or, or hear about or see or sweep via communities, you're really beginning to get into the real essence of the way people behave, how they interact with the brand. And again, for us, giving a designer that kind of understanding about what's at stake and where the brand goes that then gets into, as, as I say, the predictive space. So, you know, one of the the guy that runs the predictive data science uh, discipline in our firm actually worked on the last two Obama campaigns and was really instrumental in understanding, you know... Was he working for Obama while he was working for you? Um, so you were... So VSA the, was working for the Obama? Last, no, there was a six-month period where he was still on retainer. But what's interesting about that... Well, he did well. (laughs) Yeah. What's interesting about that, as you know, it came down to what state, what district, what zip code, what address was going to decide that sort of pivotal swing that happened in the last couple months. But that's an example of an individual who didn't want to go to work for a design firm. He's on the faculty at Medill wanted to be engaged with creative people to rethink the way people experience something. Now, in his case, you know, he happened to be involved in getting a president, helping understand how a president got elected. In our case, he's getting charged now in his career by understanding how people behave and interact with brands and what kind of consumer preferences are out there and how to understand how that behavior will influence the design process. Can you talk about ways in which this type of work has impacted some of the projects that you've done? Can you talk about some of the actual projects themselves and how this dovetails with the results? I'll give you an example where we do work for Kraft, and they they have a beverage division, and we're in the process of helping redefine the Kool-Aid brand, which is a perfect thing for VSA because we love these age-old brands like Harley-Davidson and Converse and IBM. Um, Mac. Mac trucks, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that before yeah. the end of the show. And uh, what was interesting is 
we won that business from a, a large digital firm that is very competent. And, you know, what the data and research showed us, the audience, the primary target audience for Kool-Aid is the mom, you know, a 30 to 40-year-old mother who wants to buy Kool-Aid, <laughs> have a beverage choice. But the audience that they were marketing to and the populace who were really the most active, and I'll just segregate this a minute to the Facebook community and the online communities, were like 22, 23-year-old kids in dorm rooms just kind of riffing off a Kool-Aid man. Right. And, you know, we want to keep those people, but we don't want craft to be making these important investments in targeting the wrong audiences. The moms that were socializing, for instance, in the digital space, were interested in certain kinds of music. So we did a partnership with Pandora. They were interested in sharing experiences around healthy ways to live and raise their kids. We were able to really get underneath the sort of digital approach to activating that brand through that lens. And then Kool-Aid Man, we actually... We wanted him to be fun across multiple ages, so we created a the first photobombing app with Kool-Aid Man. Which, So what we've been able to do is target the customer, design experiences that are relevant to them, re-energize a brand that kind of had lost its way. And that, again, is what designers like to do. They like to make meaning. They like to inspire. And, and so this marriage of data science and strategy and design those three functions can go hand in hand, and one doesn't have to, again, be sacrificed in service of the other. They can all work harmoniously and do a good job. You've been one of Harley-Davidson's closest collaborators. How much did your personal knowledge of the company influence your work? So Harley came to be at VSA through a cold call I had made after reading an article in the Wall Street Journal where they were thinking about reinventing well, they were reinventing the company. There were a group of senior management that were buying back the company from AMF, and then they were going to take it public. And I just happened to be either dumb enough or lucky enough to pick up the phone, get a hold of the person in charge of marketing, and, oh, yeah, come on up. You know, I'd been a motorcycle I know. Did you arrive there in your motorcycle? No, no. <laughs> I couldn't afford a Harley at the time. I, I you know, came, grew up in the minibike uh, era, and... Um, so you cold called the company and then ended up helping to... Yeah, and they said, you know, why don't you come up with uh, one of our PR folks that are at Bozell down in Chicago. And first assignment they gave us is, you know, we're going out to Wall Street, try to influence institutional brokerage houses to load up on Harley stock. And uh, we need a folder. <laughs> and... That this is the first assignment, a folder to put all our our prospectuses in, our valuation, our you know our business plan. I kid you not. Oh yeah, yeah, I'll do the folder. Came back, I know a week later with like fifteen folder designs, and I remember, I remember the management team looking at me going, <laughs> "Oh God, he must really love this company. Uh, we'll take that one." <laughs> Good job. Here, here's your four hundred dollars. We'll see you soon. Then what happened? And then we just um, we became the kind of go-to guys for for um, folders. For folders, yes. For handkerchiefs, bandanas. No, 
there was this huge need beyond traditional advertising and strategic branding work that Prophet and Carmichael Lynch was doing, and they were doing a stellar job. I mean, actually, there's books written about it. But they were a design-centered company. Willie G. Davidson, the great-grandfather, the founder, I met him the second week I interacted with the company. And I kid you not, I went into the product design studio, and he was sitting there with Prismacolor pencils drawing, which they still do to this day, hand-drawing the typography that goes on the side of the tanks. And he sat down with me and talked about his experience at Art Center and how things were broken at the dealership level and that we certainly need advertising. But he and the director of marketing at the time said, we have so many needs from creating brand expression at point of sale to doing our annual report to doing apparel and promotion hang tags. And we just like a kind of a turbulent storm started to ride that wave. And what we were lucky enough to be present for is some of the important decision-making processes and projects that help define the the brand essence of the company. A lot of um, opportunistic agencies would have came in and say, oh, we need a brand standards manual and the logo should be this color at this size. And you know, you need some of that when you have three, 400 dealerships. But what they really were interested in and what we were really passionate by was creating a, a design palette that was as expressive as the riders themselves. Because if you get it wrong with Harley customers, they call you out. I yeah. mean, these are people that tattoo the logo on the side of their arm. Some of them have more money tied up in their motorcycle and in their, in their house. So we just really have tried to stay true to that notion that if we pay close attention to the integrity of the brand, you know, 30 years later, we're just lucky enough to be there. And But never d- does a day go by where we're not put on the stand to defend and, you know, deliver. One of your most recent projects is the rebranding of the Mac brand, mm-hmm. Mac Trucks. How did you go about rebranding a cultural icon, a brand that's become part of another brand that's become part of the American lexicon. By virtue of Mac's corollary to Harley, both started by a couple brothers over 100 years ago, deeply rooted in the American industrial movement. Harley was making the first motorcycles. Mac was making the first trucks. A lot of that History was steep, too, in the rise of the World War and how they supplied the GIs with motorcycles and trucks and how those vehicles became just a core element of military life and everything it stood for back during the FDR time. They were feeling like they had lost their way with all their brand essence. So the Bulldog, which is um, still the symbol for Mac, tough as a Mac truck, They felt like somewhere along the lines over the last 10 years, they kind of got so systemized around how they marketed and how they represented the brand that they had to sort of redesign and re-engineer the brand meaning back to what, you know, it really stood for. American values like durability and toughness and reliability. They believed the brand could be a catalytic part of the way they connected with customers. And they were kind of getting more 
not that they were going off course, but they were getting into more of the features and benefit story mm. of Mac. And they Never felt a that, good idea. Well, they, yeah, they felt that there was this untapped emotional brand value that they could awaken. So we're just beginning the journey with Mac, kind of helping them get their house in order. And a lot, But a lot of the lessons we learned from Harley and having worked in the equipment space, and, and it's just a joy, frankly. When you get a chance to work with, like, IBM and Converse and Harley and Mac, again, those are strangely masculine brands, I suppose. <laughs> At least three of those are. There's something interesting when you dig through the design archives and you actually discover there are corporations out there that have this incredible legacy and essence around the way they look, the way they think, the way they express themselves. I remember the one of the first meetings I had with IBM, I sheepishly said at the end of the meeting, do you guys still think about Paul Rand and kind of look to him as an important element in the way you think about your branding? And they immediately said, absolutely. Really? I mean, yeah. And, uh, and this was sort of during the Gerstner reinvention stage at, at IBM. But one of the things that they said that they looked at in terms of a lens that Paul Rand sort of bestowed on them is the brand, when it's expressed, has to sort of live up to three core ideals, clarity, humanity, and wit. If you kind of look at that trajectory of the IBM brand when it's sort of steered off course, they've kind of lost the character of the brand. And so over the last 20 years that we've been fortunate enough to work with IBM and, and in collaboration with SYP and Ogilvy, there's a deep-seated understanding of the meaning that Paul Rand brought to the conversation about how IBM represents itself, what, what is the character of the brand, not just the, you know, if you look at IBM versus Microsoft, for an ex you think of Microsoft every time, you know, a Windows upgrade comes. Mm -hmm. You think of IBM around big thinking, about solving really complex and interesting challenges. There's a whole different essence to the IBM brand and and that's true of Mac. It's true of Harley. It's just digging underneath those layers and seeing if those things are still relevant. And if they are, you know, it's your job to sort of sustain them. I love the notion of clarity and humanity and wit. Clarity and humanity feel somewhat self-explanatory in terms of what you'd expect to be able to provide mm -hmm. a client in a rebrand. Where does wit come in? You know, and I... And I don't want to speak for IBM, but they, for instance, aren't going to sort of take the Geico comedy <laughs> approach. Right. I don't really see that as wit as yeah. much as humor. Maybe you'd call it intellectual charm, but maybe that's even Cheek. too Cheek. Yeah, too highfalutin. <laughs> um, the best things that are created for IBM, well, just take the Rebus, for example, that Paul Rand designed, which is making a big comeback. To have the guts to take a highly successful global brand and just go live with that at the end of a commercial spot or to reignite that around a lot of the values that senior management still holds true to, there's a little wit to that. I mean, and there's just enough of that to sort of gain strength on a human level. Well, it seems like clarity, humanity, and wit is almost a mantra for how to live. 
Yeah, it goes back to the earlier dialogue we had around that bigger idea that the uh, Aspen Institute had. It's the celebration of humanity, <laughs> which is still, to, to me, it's, it, well, maybe now more than ever, we need that. Dana, the last thing I want to ask you about is your stance that design always provides a context for people to understand, which translate to joy and the love that you can find in your work. How have you found that love in your own work? Boy, big question. I know. I like to talk about love. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the risk of borrowed interest, Harry Bertoia once said, the urge for great design is much like the urge to go on living. The assumption is somewhere hidden there's a better way of doing things. When you sit down with a blank sheet of paper, the most visceral joy that I I still have is sketching out an idea. Creativity for me stems from the joy of drawing and thinking and somehow had enough influence and advice along the way to kind of connect the dots to create something that had commercial value. But you, you put all that success aside and certainly the incredible people I've been surrounded by, uh, it's just the joy of creating that gives me personal satisfaction. And these days, helping to create a business as much as it is sitting down and <laughs> sketching out a logo it's sort of sketching out a, a, a way for VSA to take all this great talent we have and, and ensure that it, it's going to have that same chance that I had. Dana, congratulations on receiving the AIGA medal, and thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. My pleasure. Thank you, Debbie. To learn more about Dana Arnett and VSA Partners, go to vsapartners.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.